I'm Katie Kuhn, and this is Living Local, a United Way of Greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County podcast. What will your job look like in five years? How about 10 years? 20 years? Today's world of work, particularly the manufacturing sector, is becoming increasingly digital, and automation is the way of the future. The question on many people's minds is, does our increasing reliance on digital and automated solutions to drive industry mean fewer jobs? The answer is a resounding no. According to research by the National Association of Manufacturers and Deloitte, over the next decade, modern manufacturing will have nearly 3.5 million job vacancies. The question is, will we have the workforce that has the right skills and abilities to do these jobs? Innovation and automation in the workforce was the topic at hand at a recent leadership panel put on by United Way's emerging leaders and IT United donor networks and generously hosted by GE Healthcare. Panelists Mary Burgoon of Rockwell Automation, Bill Carraher of Von Briesen and Roper, and Rebecca Kowalski of Manpower Group talked about our changing workforce and how individuals and organizations must adapt in order to meet future needs. Don't miss out on awesome learning and networking opportunities like this one. We won't podcast them all. Learn more about how you can join United Way's emerging leaders and IT United donor networks by visiting us at unitedwaygmwc.org and searching donor networks. John Dunn of GE Healthcare moderated the panel. Mary responds first, then you'll hear from Bill and Rebecca a little later in the podcast. Thank you for being here. Let's start it off. Mary, where do you see automation being underutilized and how might that translate to opportunities? So, good morning everyone. Um, That's a really good question. There are many manufacturing companies, unless they're brand new, have decades old control systems, right? So, they are not leveraging all the value, all the tools and technology that come with an up-to-date modern automation system. There's something that that is called the hidden factory. And what that is, it's not something that is hidden behind closed doors. That is all the processes that are not being leveraged um, that result in additional waste. So that impacts around quality, around safety, and around productivity. So by by updating your control system, and many companies are doing that, they're moving along, what you guys talked about, the digital thread, a digital transformation. They're updating their control system. And just from that, they can increase their yield, they can increase the amount of products they produce, by a factor of 10. But they're also improving their safety of their employees, their security. That's been really a driving motivator for many companies as they move to a more modern automation system is the cybersecurity aspect, right? Everybody's worried about um, IP, their IP protection, whether it's an intentional um, ingress or whether it's accidental. So that's what's driving it. So you have um, people that are accessing that are supposed to be accessing. Now there are um, elements that um, you know that that will always be a factor. Um, part of the challenge is is that you have a workforce that while you want your automation system to to progress and be modern, the workforce might not be quite ready for that yet. And so that's some of the activities that have to go hand in hand with upgrading your technology as upgrading your workforce, training them to be more productive. Wait, as these changes come about, you talk about some of the yeah. risks with security. What about the how? How do you approach some of these changes, and what does it take in order to implement some of the um, elimination of the, the hidden factors? So it is a gradual thing. Um, many times um, you don't just rip and replace. It's very expensive. Customers have to produce cars. They have to produce 
beer, they have to produce medical devices. So you have to do it in a way that's thoughtful and mindful. You do it, you do it at a very intentional pace. So they may pick a line to start with, see what sort of improvements they can, um, they can attain. They call them, often call them pilots. Um, there's a lot of data ac acquisition that comes with that too. Many don't know how to do all that data, or they put in a new line. Now we've got all this data, what do we do with it? So there's a lot of training that goes with it. Now, a brand new facility, like what we're going to see here with a couple new ones that are coming into our Wisconsin, you do have the opportunity to go brand new all the way from the modern plant immediately. But most times, because they're decades old, you can't just rip and replace. Okay, and what about the trends that we see across Milwaukee? Are we keeping up with other parts of the other parts of the country as this new technology comes about? We are not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> however, that presents an opportunity for us, right? Um, we are not. But there are this the new manufacturer that's coming in, you know, Foxconn is shining a light on the opportunities for us to actually this is a great time to take stock. Otherwise things just complacency um, often is the rule. So this presents for us an opportunity to take stock, look at our curriculums at our technical colleges, our vocational colleges, all the work that's going on with Marquette, uh, UWM. There's also a lot of public-private consortiums that are looking at education, looking at our workforce, like IC Stars. It presents a great opportunity to do that. We are not, we are, we are way behind, but we're making progress, right? So it's better late than never, but we're moving forward. Bill, 65% of jobs for uh, Gen Z will do not exist yet. Um, how does this kind of uncertainty impact the skills people will need to have? Yeah, so um, some of my thoughts on this uh, around are around education. And I think a lot has been done, and there's a lot more that can be done and will be done. So starting early in education, we're seeing more and more, you know, if you have children in grade school, you're seeing more and more STEM programs. And I think STEM is such a great opportunity for students and children to get, get in, uh, in touch with technology and get exposed to technology. So that exposure at an early age is so key for, for the early student to just kind of think about, question, uh, ponder. And in addition, you know, things like Lego robotics, you know, it sounds very, you know, kind of, oh, it's just a game and it's just playing around. But these are serious competitions and um, very complicated uh, problems that they have to solve. And they also add uh, elements of science and science projects on top of that. So uh, those programs are definitely uh, adding to that. And there's other things like Project Lead the Way through MSOE, where they're bringing programming into schools that are related to STEM, but maybe a school that isn't ready for a full STEM implementation or if they don't have the talent. Even things like Makerspace, so Makerspace Wisconsin has done a great job just exposing kids and tinkering and playing with things, take things apart and put it back together. So really starting early with the students and with children and that generation to get them exposed and interested in saying how do things work and why do they work. And then, uh, you know, we're seeing definitely in higher ed, we're seeing more collaboration between businesses. So as was mentioned, you know, Marquette has uh, a good relationship and a couple of the other universities with uh, the commons. So they all have come together to create the commons. If you don't know what that is, you can Google it, but it's part of Startup Milwaukee. And what they do is they take um, college students and they give them business challenges directly from businesses, and then they partner with business to solve this challenge in a short period of time. And then now you've got some linkage between students and graduates of higher ed 
and these businesses. And the goal with a lot of the Commons effort is to keep students and graduates in the region, so keep them in Milwaukee. And then uh, other other things like uh, United Way has career fair and mentoring. You know, all these programs all come together to help this next generation coming up to understand what's out there, the opportunities, and be together and experience technology, but also, hey, think about careers in technology. Thanks, Bill. And, and what about the current workforce, though? Are there things that they need to do to assess and, and provide training needs of, of current employees for, for in our area? Definitely. So I think we all agree, and a lot of our companies feel this and, and respond with this, is training is number one, right? Reinvest and train in our people. And one of the things that we've done at our law firm is, you know, we've taken a, a real look at our training program. So we used to have the same thing that a lot of companies do, a half an hour or an hour training session where you're sitting in a sitting in a lab, sitting in a room, listening to a PowerPoint, watching a video. You bring in an expert, they talk, you know. So we, we were seeing that, you know, after about 10 minutes, people would pull out their iPhone and they'd be like, okay, I gotta check my email. So it didn't really work. And so what we did is we turned training on its end and we said, you know, where do you like to experience technology? Where do you like to learn? And a lot of, you know, the, the surveys and research I did was like, you go to the Apple store. So we said, let's try to put an Apple store inside our law firm. And I was like, you're crazy. What? What do you think? But anyway, the concept was uh, meeting with the genius. So we said, hey, you know, why not have our IT geniuses, our staff, um, go and have office hours down in the training lab. And so they come in and um, for once a week we open up the lab for an hour and a half and it's five minute, five minute skills training. So you come in, it's a preset skill and you learn uh, that one skill in five minutes and then you're out the door. So we have a revolving door for 90 minutes and you come in, you learn the skill and then next week it's a new skill and then the next week it's a new skill. And so we've had 60% participation in this unique training program where it's like an Apple store. We created the experience, we even made the room kind of look like an Apple store, where we have our own staff staff it, and you get to know and meet the, the help desk people, put a face to a name, and it's not just like, oh, I hate my computer, and it's like, oh, there's John, I know John. Okay, I'm not gonna yell at John so much. So, uh, know the staff but you're also learning a skill and so the response has been great and it's a unique way um, that we've found to retrain and continuously train but in real small increments we record it we put the information on our intranet and so you can still learn it so it's a great experience uh, based learning the other couple uh, points on this is that um, um, LMS systems, so learning management systems, have a career track for your employees internally. So give them goals to hit and you could tie it to comp if you want or maybe it's bonus or something. You, you hit your milestones and you get to your comp. Um, there's other concepts like micro certifications. So Sandra Bradley I've gotten to meet. Uh, she runs a hyper innovation center in Madison. Um, it's a great uh, offshoot of the University of Wisconsin system. It's not directly affiliated, but it's, it's creating micro-certifications. So think of skills that your employees need or that you want to provide to your employees and wrap a certification around it. People love the idea of, oh, I've certified, I've passed a test, I've, I've engaged and I'm now an expert. And you can make it completely up. You know, there's guidelines on how to make micro-certifications, but people value that. That's something they're like, hey, that's, that's something that I have, you can't take it away and you've created it for your employees, and it's not just, oh, here's a certificate of participation. No, they actually had to earn it. They had to do something to get there. 
And Sandra's doing that in all different areas, blockchain and you know the new emerging technologies are definitely hot, but it could be a manufacturing process, it could be something a little more dry, but make it exciting, and it, it helps kind of reward that employee, but gets them engaged in, hey, what's the next certification I can get? Thanks, Bonus. I'm trying to write down all the great ideas on that knee and just express, uh, just to put some context around how important that is. You know, it's estimated over the next decade, there's gonna be 3.5 million manufacturing jobs that need to get filled. And as many of two, as two million of them are probably going to go unfilled. And so <laughs> the, uh, I want to open it up to the panel and see if there are other innovative programs and ideas that, that people are leveraging in order to try and ramp up our, either our existing workforce or, or future, future workforces. That's a big number. Two million is a huge number, and it almost seems overwhelming. So what we've got going on here is... Um, demographics that are not favorable, so people with skills moving out, and not enough people selecting to go in. So what we know is you're going to need a multi-pronged approach. There isn't a single silver bullet. But what we see um, from a manpower group perspective that has worked very well is having very clever, agile strategies. An example of that is the partnership we have with Rockwell Automation right now that Mary is the, the, the leader of that from the Rockwell side which is to take individuals, and in this case veterans, that have a, a base level of experience for a very high demand job in manufacturing and put them through a 12-week immersive experience so that they come out on the other side as highly qualified automation technicians. So when we talk about uh, part of our gap in manufacturing in the U.S. today, our inability to take up and maximize automation at the clip level we should Yes, some of it is because we have a, a lot of infrastructure that we can't afford to pull out and put new in right away. But there's another piece, which is that we don't have the workforce. And one of the leading roles to really maximize your automation is this technician. Now, we've been tracking the shortage of these roles for 10 years, for actually for more than that, for 12 years. That technician role has been in the top 10 hard to fill skills inside of Manpower Group's uh, talent shortage survey. It is a global shortage. It's very pervasive in the United States. And so what we did is, is Jonas, the CEO of Manpower Group, and Blake, the CEO of Rockwell Automation, said, you know, hey, Rockwell has domain expertise. Manpower has the ability to source and recruit and assess. What if we put our heads together and we just decided on this role that's so important to manufacturing, we're going to make a difference. And we're going to put 1,000 individuals per year that are highly qualified automation techs into that space. And by the way, we're going to do it with the veteran population because we need a big population because the gap is big. So could we have an opportunity to do well by doing good? And that's the program that we put together. I would submit to you we need a lot more programs like that. There is a, a endless metaphors for this. The tent is big enough to cover everyone. Everyone needs to put an oar in the water. But we need a lot of programs. We need them at the four-year um, institution level. We need them in the two years. We need them in the high schools. We need them in the grade schools. We need private-public partnerships and private-private partnerships. Because one thing I can tell you is roles are rapidly evolving in, in all sectors. Manufacturing is just extremely pronounced. If we don't all put our proverbial oar into the water, we're going to watch the opportunity pass us by. Mary, anything you want to add to that? Um, I would just add to that. Our, I'm very excited about the program that we're 
sponsoring, but there have been other really innovative um, manufacturers that have looked at other pools of populations and said, hey, where would we have a pool that also underserved, underskilled, underutilized, and, and that is a prison population. There are yes. some manufacturers in Wisconsin that are looking at uh, prison populations. They're training them, um, and they show that once they have a skill when they leave and they get a job, recidivism is very low. So we're exploring, I think, in manufacturing, you have to, all different populations, uh, any and all, I think, uh, reasonably and intentionally. We talked a little bit about some of the opportunities as well as uh, some of the skill gaps, but let's get into some of the, the technology and talk about what is actually changing. So I'm going to open this one up to the panel, um, but Rebecca, I know you've got some, some great comments as well, but what changes in technology and automation have the biggest impact on the workforce and why, and, and how are we preparing for them? So the biggest one is just digital, which is impacting across all sectors. Um, like I said, in manufacturing, it's just more pronounced partially because we were already facing a shortage, and then you have digital coming in and rapidly transforming roles. So now you have a shortage and you have an evolution of roles, you have a double squeeze, right? And it's very, very uncomfortable for manufacturers to live in that squeeze. It's very uncomfortable for our economy to live in that squeeze. So when you think about that, uh, you start to say, well, gee, can you put a shape to that? Can you make it not, as some of us were talking about earlier, it's not Skynet, it's not, you know, if you want to raise your hand and cup to having watched Terminator, which I have, it's not, it's not about the destruction of the human race, and in fact, it's not even about job destruction. It is about job transformation. And so we, we shouldn't kid ourselves here. It will change. And so people have to be very adaptive, and our educational institutions have to be very adaptive as well. The work that we did with the Digital Manufacturing and Design Institute was to say, let's very clearly articulate what that change looks like. So we identified 165 roles in manufacturing that are either going to experience some evolution all the way out to, these are not new roles that no one's ever heard of. Raise your hands if you've heard of a digital ethicist. Two years ago, no one was talking about that. They were talking about digital ethics. They weren't talking about a role. Two years ago, there were a handful of companies talking about a digital twin architect. Now you have more talking about it, but you still have a surprising level of um, low awareness in organizations around how that impacts their talent planning, how that impacts their existing population. And in education, where they say to us, we're putting our hands up, employers, you have to tell us how we keep our curriculum fresh and relevant for the roles that you see out in the future. If we're not talking to each other, we actually can't solve that gap. So I would say digital is probably the, the most pervasive. It's not even a trend. It is the transformation that we're going through. It is the next horizon in our progression as an economy. And there will be something after that. It's not like we'll then plateau out and we'll take a nap. Um, there will always be something next, but this is what we have to move through now. Bill, I'm going to throw it to you. I, I know one of the ways I keep up with technology is, is following you on LinkedIn, and you've always got uh, <laughs> insights into the, the next great thing. Um, what, what are the technologies that, that you're really excited about right now? Uh, thanks, and I always tell people if I'm if I'm too annoying on LinkedIn, don't block me. Just send me a note and tell me back off a little bit. So, but um, I'd welcome anybody to uh, connect with me. So um, I, I definitely enjoy sharing that information. But you know, there's. All the headlines are around blockchain, Bitcoin, and cryptocurrencies, but you know that's the reality of maybe in a couple of years. 
I think the, the blockchain definitely has some real uh, teeth and some real staying power for a lot of transformative uses in business. And it's really the concept is you've got a database that can be verified and can't change so that you can record records in manufacturing. You know, it's parts, it's inventory, it's manufacturing process, it's okay, that's stored and recorded, so that cannot be modified and changed. So there's real implications for the blockchain technology across all industries, but it's gonna take a couple years. You know, we have databases, we have systems, you know, when you customize software and have to rewrite it or reconfigure it to new technologies, that takes, it could take 10 years for a lot of companies. But, you know, crypto is getting so much press because of the Bitcoin surge and pricing and uh, investing and, and, you know, it's a little bit nutty out there. But, you know, we can't forget about the, the kind of humdrum or, you know, the, the old school uh, ways of doing things because we've got real world problems where we've got manufacturing lines that just need basic upgrades and some automation and some additional tracking and things. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the press is around this. But I, I do feel like the education part is, is such a big piece of this. Uh, if I can and share the IC Star story for a minute, it would be great. So um, about three years ago, I got contacted. There's a training program in Chicago where they've been training inner city youth for IT jobs. And I'm like, oh, that's a really cool idea. You know, I don't know of Milwaukee having anything like that. Uh, the work, Workforce uh, Development Group uh, has got the Tech Hires Grant from the Obama administration, which is similar in that they train um, city youth and, 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 and adults for IT careers. This is just a little bit different in that there's a partnership between business. And so IC Stars uh, <coughs> Milwaukee is launching April 1st. And the program is it's a four-month immersive program. It takes 20 inner city youth, 18 to 27-year-old, GED or high school diploma is the only minimum requirement. And it takes them and puts them in this program, and it's a four-month immersive program teaching skills like web development, mobile development, help desk skills, database design, database support and development. It gives them real-world skills based upon projects that companies like all of yours will bring to the program. So you bring a business challenge to the program, the students work on it, they learn from it, they work with your staff and the trainers and the training program. They solve that problem, they work on it, and then now they've got some real world experience, they've got some connections. And then at the end of the four months, the hope is that all 20 will get placed in all of the companies in Milwaukee as interns. The interns have flexibility, you can hire them for a month, you can hire them as an intern for six months, a year, hopefully that turns into full-time employment, if it doesn't, they can come back to the IC Stars program for two years as a resident, and they can continuously learn, learn new skills, help give back to the program, be a trainer, train other people. And one of the key success factors that uh, the Chicago program is going for over 10 years, they've got, uh, out of 400 graduates, they've got 10% of those graduates are homeowners. And they've gone back to the communities where they came from and where they are giving back to the communities they're now showing that, hey, I can rise up, I can be a leader in my community, and I can be a homeowner. I wanna live where I grew up and continue that and make my city better. So we're so excited. Um, the Doman Foundation, it was just in the paper this past week, that the Doman Foundation has committed $1.6 million for this program and for its launch nationally. So it was only in Chicago and Columbus, and now it's in Milwaukee, and they wanna bring it to at least eight more cities in the United States. Milwaukee being the first uh, expansion city under Doman's grant. So 
we're very fortunate. The United Way and IT United have also been supportive in the fact that uh, helping to launch the program, get connected with businesses like all of yours. And so, um, you know, I hope that uh, you know you guys can reach out to me and reach out to the program, find out more about it. And uh, it's it's just a great program. It's helping Milwaukee. It's helping our youth. It's helping the city, and it's helping all of us fill this skills gap. So a lot of win wins across the board. I was also on LinkedIn recently and uh, took, my, <laughs> took myself a, uh, a digi quotient test oh. and uh, found out who my profile is. So who is it? Um, I got Elon Musk. I got yeah. Elon Musk as well. Impressive. Yeah, I guess. I just answered. That was like, that was, <laughs> that's at the baseline. Everyone's in the class. I took a couple times to see how you can uh, try and figure out the logic behind the test. You'll um, figure it out, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> um, can, you, can you share with us a little bit about the, the digi quotient, what it means, and, and, and really, what does it mean for the future of leaders in the technology space as well? Yeah, so, um, and more than the technology space, right? So, we, in, in looking at this kind of transformative landscape that we're looking, uh, looking at today, we said, if the workforce is going to fundamentally change, that's going to change the way organizations are structured, right? So just follow the digital thread through to its logical progression, and you get flatter, you get faster, you get more collaborative, you get you know, the marriage of data and intuition. The organization looks different. And then the question is, well, who leads that? Because that is, by definition, not the usual hierarchy, not the usual layers that we trained managers to lead for years. And by the way, you know, organizations will go through a maturity curve on this. It's not like it's a binary shift from one to the, to the other. But we believe that the leader actually looks different. Uh, so. The digit quotient is essentially, and I would encourage you to go out and take it, it is a lot of fun, right? Um, to see who your profile is, there are actually 20 some odd profiles. But what we're really trying to measure here is, are you a leader that can succeed, adapt, and thrive in an increasingly digital organization, regardless of what sector you sit in? Because digital is, a, is, is the wave hitting everybody right now. So, you know, are you someone that will resist making data-driven decisions? Or are you someone who will intuitively grasp the data and understand how to make a decision uh, in a different way? How do you navigate your communication? In a flatter, faster, more transparent organization, communication looks different. For a long time, we lived with the cascade, the CEO to the leader of your geography and down the line. It's like a telephone game, right? And managers were actually measured on how well they cascaded that message. How does it look when everybody has access to the same information, the same data? They're seeing what you see. So their, their ability to judge the decisions that you've made, their ability to discern the <coughs> way that they should go, first of all, you know, there is a totally different level of responsibility and accountability uh, that many of us would argue should have been there for a long, long time. Secondly, the job of a leader is no longer to say, Bill, this is what you need to go and do, and I'm going to measure you on it. You already know what to do, and you better be doing it. If I have to tell you, we're going to have a completely different conversation. Uh, that's different, and I don't think we necessarily appreciate how much we're bound up in the old ways of leading, 
because a lot of the leadership models that we've seen come out, things like servant leadership, for instance, those are styles, but that wasn't fundamentally changing the pillars on which a leader would stand. You still had the same cascade. You still had the same, essentially, command and control, even if you were a servant leader, so to speak. So now, your, your, your um, tweaks are really very interesting. So we would talk about ability to navigate short and long-term change, for instance. Well, what happens um, when all of your decisions actually could be equally good? Is it more about managing trade-offs? What about when all of your decisions are high-risk decisions? Does Elon Musk make decisions that are not high-risk? I, I don't think so, right? We're sending a rocket to the moon. We're going to go all out into you know, uh, um, a broader consumer market for cars, right? And so what happens when it's all high-risk and when it's all transparent? That is a different ability to navigate the short and long term. And so it's the nuances. Um, I would encourage you to go out and take it because it'll then give you a profile of all of the different ways that you would have to attack decision making, um, you know, how you kind of align with that, um, and also what are your people leadership skills. So it's funny in a more digital economy that the human touch will have to be higher. And there will be a premium on the human touch. So leaders better understand that because it isn't actually about robots and about data. It is about how we unleash human potential that's augmented by more data, more AI, and more capacity than ever before. You know, with the news, and we brought up digi-ethics, and overnight I think we heard some news about Facebook and information privacy. How has information privacy changed the role of leadership and our responsibilities as stewards of information in the enterprise? From from a manufacturing perspective, it's really around cybersecurity, right? It is protecting not only your intellectual property, but also perhaps your customer's intellectual property, right? So you may manufacture or help your customer, perhaps you're a contract manufacturer or a healthcare provider or a food manufacturer. There are a lot of risks if that IP gets out. Not only somebody stealing the secrets of Coke, but health risks. So intellectual protection, our IP protection, and cybersecurity is critical. So that's a different slant on just the CIO or somebody that's in charge of data security for your own data and your customer's data. Yeah, and I would, I would add to that what's interesting when you get into, say, the role of a digital ethicist, it is all of those things, and it's legal, and it's people, right? And helping people understand the impact of the decisions that they make may have a more wide-ranging uh, footprint than ever before because it's not just impacting your organization, it's impacting your supply network, it's impacting your consumer network, it's impacting potentially their day-to-day. -day. How do we make sure that we've trained our leaders and our people to make good decisions around the data beyond the hygiene and the security of it, but around what what is the boundary between where we should be and too far. Uh, and those are new questions. I mean, actually, I shouldn't say that. They're not new questions. They've taken on a new sense of urgency because what we thought were pretty black and white answers, now there's a lot of gray. And helping leaders and um, individuals handle that gray is, is going to be critical. 
And I, I would just add to this conversation about data and privacy. You know, as a law firm, we're holders of companies and individuals' most sacred secrets. And we have an ethical duty and a law license on the line for each of our attorneys that if that confidentiality is breached, uh, they're out of business. So we're in the business of privacy and ethics and practicing it and also protecting it. So we kind of take uh, the approach with information, you know, Information sharing is great, but we're on a need-to-know basis. So uh, our data is the most sacred thing. We protect it, and we make sure that our permissions and our user levels are set so that you uh, cannot access that data unless you need to know it. But we also look at the life cycle of data. So a lot of cyber breaches and everything that has happened for a lot of big companies, it's this is monumental historic data that they've been sitting on. You know. If we look at and we ask the business analytics and BI people, they'll say, keep as much data as you can. It's great, it's great information. We can make great decisions on it for all this historical uh, data points. But uh, from a legal perspective, you don't want to have that data any longer than you need to hold it because it's a liability. Everybody thinks, oh, the longer I keep this email, it's going to be, you know, it's going to help me out of a situation. Well, it actually, and there's been lots of studies done. The, the, the majority of the time uh, in discovery of data in a legal situation, the data has hurt people more than it's helped people. So we consult and tell our clients that keep and uh, create a life cycle for your data. Have retention policies and follow through on them. Delete the data that you don't need. Archive it off and um, you know have a, have a disposition cycle for it so that you get rid of it when you don't need it anymore. Because it, it, in a lot of ways, it's a liability from a cyber risk. It's a liability from a potential litigation risk. Uh, why keep it other than if you have business analytics reasons, maybe? Uh, but a lot of times, it's a liability. So we have to look at it from that perspective, too. We talked a lot about trade-offs and, and teams and how we can really try and drive some of this changing technology into the workplace. But what are the keys to maximizing the investments so that your, your ROI and your benefits are, are as great as they can be? I thought I was going to hear everyone say, one, two, three, not it. Yeah, There's a lot in that. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll kick it off with just a general um, observation. To get the maximum out of any of this, you have to look at the people side. So there are lots of conversations about hardware and software and you know when you roll off legacy, when you roll in new. Um, and what I get concerned about is when we don't think about the people <coughs> side of the equation. Because without the talent there to operate it, to make the decisions to guide, you really don't have anything. So all the way from what we talked about around leadership to thinking through how decision pathways have looked in the past, how they will look now as you have more intelligence coming in, more data streams, how do those need to be re-architected, to thinking about very, very thoughtfully, what does our workforce plan need to look like? Because now we know what's coming, we see where the investments are being made, are we being thoughtful about how we prepare our people? You know, our position from a manpower group perspective is talent is a renewable resource, right? Which is, it's funny because that's intuitive, and yet we haven't treated it that way. We've treated it like it was in abundance, and so when it didn't fit our needs, it could be exited. And that mindset will no longer serve us. You heard the numbers earlier. 
just in one sector we're on pace to be two million short by 2025. We have got to be much more thoughtful about talent as a renewable resource. On an organizational level, that means if I know this is the talent we're going to need, I have to start thinking about how I upskill my people, how I invest in them, and create those expectations that they invest in themselves and that they do have a pathway, a career pathway that is driven by their willingness to learn and adapt. Um, if we miss that, we've missed everything. So. I'd say two themes on top of that would be culture and uh, empowerment. So what's your internal culture? <clears throat> Are you fostering uh, a culture that supports all of this and supports next generation that wants visibility, that wants leadership, that, um, that has earned it or you know, wants to be engaged in that? And then empowerment, are we giving them the opportunity to, um, to get there? And I think those are two things that we, we often say, but maybe are we practicing what we preach? And what does it look internally and externally? You know, I, I think a lot of companies don't think as much about how cool are they to work for. You know, next generation, current generation, we all want to work for a cool company and they're doing cool things. And, um, you, know, you can't underestimate the, the power of cool. And you know, <laughs> what, uh, you know, what that drives people's decisions on where to work and do they want to go to work? Are they feeling fulfilled and uh, heard and respected? And I think that's something that we need to take a step back and say, are, are, what are we doing in these, in these areas of culture? So I'm going to take a completely different perspective. Not in addition, um, I think that well, I know that you know many. Uh, there's there's a fear of um, all this data and what's the impact on manufacturing, um, because there is a, a you know just a deluge of data. Because a machine can produce millions and millions of pieces of data. How do you use it? And what do you do with it? Not everybody is a data scientist. So what can we do as manufacturers, as suppliers to manufacturers, to make it easier to use? Because so a couple different things. Um, we're saving, we're doing things with collaborative robots. So we can best use our, the highest skilled workforce that we have, our greatest asset, into more productive ways. But we're also developing software tools that take that data and just provide exactly what you need. Whether it's predictive, whether they're bots, various different things to enable productive manufacturing. So people get really, you know, they get their heads wrapped around, oh, it's the coolest thing, it's the latest thing. Well, sometimes a very simple solution with technology that enables them to best use the data to make decisions is, is the best way. And also, a lot of what we're using in our personal lives with tablets, with mobility, with cellular technology, that is moving its way to manufacturing as well. So we're finding that, and the sense of urgency and the speed of moving, that is finding its way in manufacturing as well. So those technologies are already existent. People are comfortable with it. So when we introduce it in manufacturing, it's not a huge leap in training. It might be some software tools, understanding the data, they might have different um, you know, dials and widgets to use, but overall they feel comfortable with it. So that training piece has, has reduced, the amount of time to train has greatly reduced. But it also enables them to make decisions quickly with the data that they're getting, instead of having to become PhDs and data scientists. Well, thank you. And, and Mary, Bill, Rebecca, thank you so much. I, I think you added a lot to a, a great panel, some interesting topics. I learned a ton. Um, I hope everyone here did. You know, and it was amazing to me, whether we were talking about Internet of Things or cryptocurrencies, artificial intelligence, robotic process automation, it always came back to the people. 
and the ability for people to adapt and, and change. So I think it was a, a really helpful panel. Um, on behalf of GE Healthcare, I'd like to thank each of you for coming out um, today for the event. I'd like to thank the emerging leaders and IT United members and parts of the community. You know, personally, I've witnessed the, um, the ability that United Way has to help mentor and, and build the agencies, hundreds of agencies in our community. I hope all of you have mentors and guidance in your organizations. What United Way does to help agencies in our community is just amazing, and it's one of the reasons I give uh, time and talent to United Way. Thank you to the emerging leaders, IT United members, for their generosity. Um, remember, uh, looking at your program in the last page, I believe there's upcoming events. And hope everyone can join the tour. It's really an exciting uh, uh, customer showcase of some of the products that we make here in this building and throughout the world for uh, healthcare. So thank you for your time and uh, appreciate your attendance today. That was John Dunn of GE Healthcare, Mary Burgoon of Rockwell Automation, Bill Carraher of Von Briesen and Roper, and Rebecca Kowalski of Manpower Group discussing innovation and automation in the workforce. This conversation was followed by a lively audience Q&A with the panelists, with one highlight being Bill Carraher further defining why it's crucial to be a cool workplace in order to attract talent. Don't miss out on events like these in the future. Learn more about how you can become a member of the Emerging Leaders and IT United donor networks to access exclusive learning opportunities and meet other passionate, community-minded individuals like yourself by visiting our website at unitedwaygmwc.org and searching Donor Networks. Living Local is produced by myself, Katie Kuhn, Melissa Hannon, Brian McCaig, and John Waldbauer.